You know, consistently creating new content isn't easy. All too often, I find myself awake at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., thinking about my next episode. But recently, I found this little shot that gives me such a great energy boost that I've actually cut down on my coffee intake. It's called Magic Mind. With matcha and ashwagandha, one of my favorite Ayurvedic rasayans, it makes me happier in the mornings, it's not heavy on caffeine, so now I'm thinking about my next episode in the afternoons, because guess what? I sleep like a baby through the night. So seeing how well it works for me, I'd encourage you to try it out as well. Go to magicmind.co slash TFP and join others who want increased focus and productivity. You can also use my discount code TFP20 to get 40% off of your first subscription or 20% off of your first one-time purchase. My 40% off code lasts only for 10 days, so check out Magic Mind today. I think that one can't make anything worthwhile unless one has something on the line. I teach playwriting. I've been teaching for 27 years. I tell my students, I don't care what you write about, but it has to matter to you. There has to be blood on the page to some extent. There has to be some sense that you have something invested personally in this. Otherwise, why bother? And if it doesn't matter to you, then why would it matter to me? Welcome to the True Fiction Project a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. I have with me on today's show, Ellen McLaughlin. She is an actor and a playwright. She's done a bunch of work. Specifically, she has written for the Play On podcast series. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. Great to have you on the show. We are very, very interested in learning more about your work in general and specifically what you have done for Play On. So uh, where do we begin? Well, I can tell you a little bit about that project because it's been, you know, controversial and, and kind of extraordinary at the same time. What Play On did was a few years ago, they asked 39 playwrights to translate into modern English the plays of William Shakespeare. And by that, they meant that they would take some of the language that modern audience members find difficult. I mean, let's face it, for anybody watching a Shakespeare play, about 40% of the language is obscure to truly difficult for us. And we rely on the productions to help us through the passages that are obscure to us. And it puts a lot of pressure on actors to make language that is almost completely opaque for us, understandable. But there are ways in which you can, with a very light hand, you can come in and shift the placement of a verb or slightly clarify a word or two in a passage and suddenly 
audience members who would never have understood the language as spoken in the original can actually understand the meat of the arguments and the gist of poetry that was lost on them. And uh, because uh, audience members only get to see a play, hear a play once, they can't look at a text, they can't look at footnotes, it's extraordinary to have the language actually be coherent throughout a production. Mm-hmm. So you don't change things like, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question, because it's obviously completely clear. But mm. there are passages, even just lines, even in that speech, which are impossible to for us to understand, certainly on one hearing. And the play that was assigned to me was Shakespeare's Pericles, which is one of the most difficult of his plays, and and hence one of the uh, least produced. Interesting. What there, makes it, it so difficult? Well, it's quite clear that Shakespeare didn't write quite a lot of it. There's at least a, a third of it, which was written by somebody else. Most people think it was a writer named George Wilkins. And so there's a lot of it that is really tough for us. And there's a major character, the poet Gower, who was a medieval poet, and who that Shakespeare has animated to be the chorus figure. And his language was supposed to be obscure for Shakespeare's audience. So it's incredibly difficult for us. And What I was able to do, which was really fun, was to take that language in particular and still use the verse form that he has for that character, but translate, literally translate it into language that was understandable for us, if slightly archaic, you know, but understandable. Mm -hmm. And Pericles is a play that a lot of people don't particularly appreciate, but I found it in the course of working on it. So beautiful and strange and interesting. And I, there, well, there are two huge moments of revelation and climax. Uh, one mm-hmm. s- sort of towards the end of the piece in which the father, Pericles, the king, mm-hmm. has assumed that his daughter has been dead for many years and has been in mourning for her and for his wife. And in one scene, they happen to have a moment of recognition. And she, who's been through her own ordeals, is reunited with her father, whom she thought she would never know and never meet. It's this extraordinary moment of this amazing encounter. And it's this moment of pure, pure joy at the end of it. And it's very moving for us because we've seen both of these characters go through the ordeals that they've gone through, and we see them meet in this extraordinary scene, which is clearly written by Shakespeare. There's no way it could have been written by anybody else. I found that a really amazing thing to get to work on. I'm sure you mentioned, I think, a little bit earlier or in our earlier conversation that it's the kind of play that many don't resonate with, but you yourself did. And I'm wondering, did it strike a chord? Was there an incident in your own life that it reminded you of? Yeah. 
I mean, I think one of the reasons that it hasn't had as much production as some so many of the other plays is that it has been, the language is so obscure. One of the things that I've been thinking about as we were preparing for this interview is moments of, there are two characters who are brought in after Pericles has his revelation. There are two characters who are brought in and he tells them what has happened. He tells them about the extraordinary revelation that he's had, which is to have met his daughter whom he thought was dead. Mm-hmm. And they are brought in to witness this joy. He's dancing around. <laughs> he's, mm-hmm. And I thought about moments when, in my life, when I've watched somebody I didn't know, often a stranger, feel extraordinary joy, go through a moment of revelation. And mm-hmm. one of them was, my husband is a singer, and among other things, and he trained with a great soprano named Phyllis Curtin, and he became sort of part of her family and would drive her. She taught at Tanglewood in uh, Massachusetts, which is a summer program for musicians, and she taught voice. And he, we were driving over to her last class of the summer, and she was saying, there's this one girl who's come. She has a lovely voice, but I haven't been able to reach her. In four years, she's been coming to the program. And I keep on trying to, there's this, this last thing, if she could release this moment, if she could release her voice, there's just so much more power and beauty that she would have access to. But I can't, I'm going to have to, after this summer, tell her, you know, I've used all of my the arrows in my quiver, I can't really help you with this. And so we were watching and one singer after another came out and it was a master class. So one singer after another came out and sang beautifully and she gave a few notes and they sang even more beautifully. And then the last singer was this young woman who came out and sang very nicely. It was a perfectly good voice. Mm -hmm. And then Phyllis gave her a couple of notes And all of a sudden she was singing and her voice just opened up. It was this extraordinary moment of realizing there was this whole other gear that she had. And it was like we were all blown back in our seats by the size, but also the beauty of the sound. And as she was singing her, she started weeping. And she, at the end of it, she turned to Phyllis and she said, oh, that's what you were talking about? And Phyllis was weeping and said, yes, you finally cracked it. And I realized that we were witnesses to one of the great moments of this young woman's life, that whatever happens, she will be changed forever. And it was one of those things where you realize you're just privileged to be a bystander. Mm -hmm. And there was another time that we were visiting, well, he was working in Prague, and there's this castle at the top of the city, and you go up to the top of the city and there it's this beautiful This is your name. husband, right? Your husband yeah, is working in Prague. Okay. My husband is named Rindy Eckert. We just happened to be in Prague in the summer for this mm-hmm. festival that he was part of. And so one day when we had nothing else to do, we went up to the castle grounds and on the castle grounds was this one of those chess games where a chess master was playing twenty five people. Mm-hmm. And it took about, you know, there were all the tables were lined up and it, it took a few hours, and he was just moving down the line and shifting, and the people sitting at the table would wait for him to come back and make another move. And 
one by one, he beat everybody. And we just happened to be watching. And then he got to this kid who was maybe 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And this kid stayed in after everybody else, all these adults were eliminated. And at the very end, the chess master laid his pawn Mm -hmm. down, which was his piece down, or his his king, which is, you know, the sign that he's lost. And he laid his piece down, and he shook this child's hand. And this kid just, there was this sense of amazing accomplishment. And Mm -hmm. the chess master was smiling about it. And we Mm -hmm. watched the two of them go down separate the chess master sort of smiled and walked down into the summer evening. And the child turned around and just walked down alone into the city and was just beaming. And the sense of like, <laughs> we happened to watch one of the most important moments of this kid's life. Life, um, yes. And I just thought, there are those things where you just happen to be there at the time when somebody has a revelation or somebody is... Mm-hmm. experiences extraordinary joy. And yes. um, those are the moments. Somehow, I'll always remember those two moments because I just felt like it was my proximity to somebody else's big moment in somebody else's life. It was a big moment in mine. It was a big moment in yours. And it's really interesting to hear from you in your own words how this personal, true experience then factors into the art when you are at work and how you're thinking about it. My question is, when you create your art, when when you do your work, are you always thinking about some true life moment or the other, relating it back, or is it happenstance? I think that one can't make anything worthwhile unless one has something on the line. I teach playwriting. I've been teaching for 27 years at Barnard. And Mm -hmm. I tell my students, I don't care what you write about, but it has to matter to you or it's not worth your time. Um, Right. There has to be blood on the page to some extent. There has to be some sense that you have something invested personally in this. Otherwise, why bother? You know, it's really Mm -hmm. hard to write plays. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't matter to you, then why would it matter to me? And I feel the same way when I go to plays, that you can feel when there's passion involved. You can feel when the playwright has something invested. Mm-hmm. And it makes all the difference in the world, because it may not be my passion. It probably won't be my passion. But, you know, what we're here to do is to enter into the passions of others, the joys of others, the sorrows of others, the ethical dilemmas of others. And if we don't do that, if we're not engaged in that, then Mm -hmm. we're not engaged in anything worth doing on some level. And I just feel strongly Mm -hmm. that if you're not involved in your own art, then why would you do it? Then why would you do it? If you don't have anything at stake, then Mm -hmm. what's the point? So, Ellen, would you say that goes just for plays? What about books or film or Oh, it's absolutely the same thing. But it's also, you know, it's true for anything that 
You know, the thing about playwrights is we're faced with a blank page. Mm. And mm. it means that every time we embark on, every time we make a mark on that page, we're putting ourselves on the line, or we should be at any rate. You know, you've got to have something at stake. I took acting classes with an extraordinary actor named Austin Pendleton, who was just a really gentle, soulful teacher. And uh, he told this story about Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine, who were the great acting couple of the 30s and 40s. And he got a part in a production of The Three Sisters that they were in. Mm. And there's mm-hmm. a scene, and he thought it was a cinch. I mean, he had a small part, and he thought, well, you know, I learn the lines, and I don't bump into the furniture, and, you know, what's the problem? And I get a paycheck at the end of the week. It's great. And the Lunts were extraordinarily famous at that time. And there was this moment during the show when the characters go off stage, and they were in this sort of sham dining room where they could pick up glasses and and clink plates and stuff like that. So they were pretending to eat so that they would make the right kind of noise off stage. So that was really, there was no, <laughs> there was no pressure on them to be, you know, performing well off stage because all they were doing was providing background noise right. for people on stage. But he said they were sitting around this sort of makeshift table and pretending to eat something. And he looked over at the Fontaines and the Lunts and both of them, their hands were shaking. Like as they picked up the teacups, the teacups were rattling in the saucers because the hands were shaking. And he realized, oh, they have something at stake here. They're terrified, you know. Mm -hmm. And he thought, maybe I should be a little more terrified than I am. Maybe (laughs) their attitude is actually right, that they're actually putting themselves on the line in a way that I am not. And it changed the way that he acted from then on. It's like, maybe you should have a certain amount of stage fright. Yes, stage fright or blood on the page, as you say. I think all of this is what makes for great art. Otherwise, like you say, what is the point (laughs) if you don't have anything invested in it? So I'd love to ask you, Ellen, you know, the premise of this show is really to create fiction out of nonfiction. And I know we've talked about this and you're going to put together the fiction piece. I wonder, is there any inkling you can give us as to what it might be? And maybe you don't know, but uh, a thought? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I've got a million theater stories because I've been doing this for a long time. And I feel that there's something I would like to crack, which is about the nature of one's involvement in Mm -hmm. But as an audience member watching things that matter, and if you talk to any theater person, there is anybody who's given their lives to the medium. There was a moment where they saw something on stage that changed mm-hmm. them, that meant you think, I want to get in, in there and do that. I want to have something to do with what's going on on a stage when it's going well. And right. as a young person, I very young. I was probably way too young. I was taken to a production of King Lear at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., where I grew up. And there's a blinding scene where Gloucester is blinded. And I still think of that as one of the most terrifying things that's ever happened to me, is mm-hmm. <laughs> to have to mm-hmm. watch that. Mm-hmm. It's still, 
it's still a scene that destroys me when I watch it in the theater. And I was, I played Cordelia in a production years later in which I had to turn off the monitor in my dressing room during that scene because I just couldn't take it. But right. at the curtain call, you know, I was like nine years old or something at the curtain call, the actors all ran up onto the stage and the guy who was playing Gloucester, the blinded guy who'd had a bloody bandage around his eyes, as he was running up to the stage, took the bloody bandage off. And I lost it because I realized he wasn't, in fact, blind. He was just fine. He was an actor. Mm -hmm. And the sense of relief, but also the sense of, wow, the, the power of what I had been led to believe. And I watched the arena stages in the round. And so, you know, the, the actors do four bows to the four sides of the stage. Right. And I had right. watched the Cordelia, the woman who played her, who was the, the daughter who does not go along with the father's attempt mm-hmm. to get his children to basically flatter him into giving them part of the kingdom. She does not flatter her father, but that's because she loves him more than the other two daughters. And... As I watched that actor take her bow, I could see the light hit the back of her back. And I thought, I'm going to play that part someday. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I just think there is that moment when you fall, whatever that click is for people who, you know, decide this is what I want to do, where the candle is lit, you know. Right, right. And I'm just interested in that. Wonderful. Well, I, for one, cannot wait to see what comes out of this. I mean, so many possibilities. Ellen, before we sign off, let us know where we can find out more about your work, your classes, your plays, anything you would like to share. Right. Well, I have a website, Ellen McLaughlin. It's Ellen, E-L-L-E-N, McLaughlin, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N.com. I'm just Wonderful. about to do the 50-year anniversary of Mabu Mines in New York, and we're going to do some readings of some Beckett plays. Wonderful. Well, we will absolutely put that link in our show notes and keep an eye on events, dates, and when things come to life. Are you going to be doing anything more for Play On? No, I think that's it. That's the play that okay. I wrote, and they did a marvelous, marvelous podcast of it, and I recommend it to everybody. Wonderful. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on The True Fiction Project. We can't wait to hear your story. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Ellen McLaughlin. She is an actor and a playwright. And I am your host at The True Fiction Project, Renita Hora. And now to the premise of The True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. To the joy of strangers. Years ago, my husband and I were visiting his beloved mentor, Phyllis Curtin, an opera singer and distinguished teacher for many years in the voice program at Tanglewood 
in the Berkshires. As we drove with her to her last class of the year, she talked about how the summer of teaching had gone, her successes and one perplexing failure. A young woman who had studied with her for four summers, gifted, as all the singers had to be to get in the door, but not quite the singer she had the potential to be. Phyllis hated to think that she had reached the end of what she could give her as a teacher, but said that the woman's voice remained pretty it had never attained the depth and power she sensed was there. There was a small audience of friends and admirers in the classroom, which was open to the late summer day. One young singer after another got up to sing an aria, receive a critique and some suggestions from Phyllis, then sing again, each time with a better understanding of the music. Finally, a young woman got up to sing. There was nothing wrong with what she was doing, but it just wasn't all that compelling. Phyllis spoke to her afterward about opening up the sound, using metaphors she had with all the students, images of water flowing, birds soaring. The young woman nodded. These were familiar tips, and began again. The aria went much as it had until, for no apparent reason, the voice suddenly seemed to release, unfurling into a spreading richness, a wave of sound that passed through us in the audience, tipping us back in our seats with its force. The singer's eyebrows raised in astonishment at the sound that was coming out of her, and then she began to cry as she continued to sing, looking over at Phyllis, who nodded, laughing. At the end, the singer was bathed in a kind of radiance, the glazed look of someone who had, in a matter of moments, become the singer she had always dreamed of becoming. We who were there to see that will never forget. There was what we happened to witness one summer afternoon, up on the grounds of the castle at the summit of the city of Prague. A chess master was playing a match against about 25 amateurs. A long line of tables was set up for a string of players seated at a series of chessboards, and the master strolled down the length of them, stopping before each player to assess the evolving game and make his move. Other than bird song, the only sound one could hear was the clicking of the pieces. As the time passed, one by one challengers tipped their kings on their sides, then offered their hands to the master for a handshake. Then they would quietly pack up their chess sets and go, leaving the tables increasingly bare. The afternoon shadows lengthened as the players dwindled until it was down to two players, a middle-aged man and a teenager, both hunched in concentration over their boards and the spare groupings of final pieces. The middle-aged player, unflappable for so long, began to rake his fingers through his hair, rocking in his seat between moves, while the teenager, perhaps 15, settled into a deeper concentration, his mouth a little open, staring at his board. The church bells of the city were all chiming the hour when the middle-aged man finally tipped his king on its side and offered his hand to the chess master. Then it was just the master and the boy, the moves going quickly but deliberately, one by one, until the boy made a move that caused the master to take a step back. He stood still in silence, a slow smile finally rising, 
He shook his head, and then, with a kind of elegance, he stepped in to tip his king on its side and offer his hand to the boy, who looked up in astonishment. They shook hands warmly and talked for a few moments. Then the crowd quietly dispersed while the boy packed up his chessboard. The master, in his shirt sleeves, his jacket slung over his shoulder, walked down the hill away from the castle grounds. Now alone, the boy stood and looked out on the evening. The lights were just starting to come on in the ancient city below, windows glinting pink as the sunset began. His expression of private exaltation reminded me of the singer's face, that look of awe in the knowledge that nothing would ever be the same after what had just happened. For each, the world they looked at now was utterly new. I don't know the names of either of the people whose stories I'm telling, and they were never aware of me. Yet what I was privileged to share with them was more intimate than what I've shared with people I know well. And somehow, as the years go on, these hinge moments in the lives of strangers have become some of the most important in my own. So I find that I have thought countless times about both of them, the woman weeping in surprise as she heard her freed voice for the first time, or that boy, who must be a man now well into his life, but who surely remembers that summer evening when, in quiet sublimity, he walked alone down from the heights into his city, smiling all the way. Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Hold up. 